Well, good morning, church. As we return to Acts chapter 8 this morning, we were in Acts chapter 8 last week. We're coming back to it again this week. We're running headlong into, into a significant question about the normal operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. To put it succinctly, the question that this passage raises for us this morning is, does the Holy Spirit normally work in, in one or two distinct stages? Does he actively baptize and empower us when he raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life in his once and for all work of regeneration? One stage. Granting us everything that we need for life and godliness through his active presence and power in our life. Does he do that? Or or does he work in two stages? One in which he grants us the grace and power to to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and then sometime, second, later down the road through which he dynamically fills us and empowers us to not only conquer sin in our life but actually be effective servants for Christ. See, See, this isn't a question that we can just ignore because it really defines our fundamental understanding of what the Christian life looks like. How, how does it work? Yet there's something more in this text today. We're going to see something more. We're going to see that the Spirit's delay among the Samaritan Christians is so much more than a matter of theological investigation into a one-stage or two-stage operation of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that. But when it comes down to it, it's so much more. Because what it is, is in our text today, we see an unmistakable display of God's sovereign goal in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's showing us his goal. To put it plainly, the Spirit's delay in Samaria points us to the glorious truth that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God and that there are no unwanted stepchildren in the family of God. That's, That's the bottom line. Every Christian has an equal standing before our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because, as we're going to see, the baptism of the Holy Spirit destroys every barrier that separates sinful humans by fully incorporating us into the body of Christ. So as we turn to our passage this morning, we're we're going to walk through this text that we walked through last week a little different. Last week we followed the narrative top to bottom. Now we're going to be focusing on, on a couple key verses. And we're going to walk this in three steps. Number one, we're going to survey three ways that theologians have understood this Spirit's delay so that we can come to better grips with the Spirit's operation in salvation. After this, we're going to transition to God's purpose in the Spirit's delay. We've already tipped our hand to to what I think it is. And then finally, we're going to conclude with some practical application as we transition to communion after the sermon this morning. So let's go to our text, starting in verse 14. We're really just going to focus on verses 14 through 17 this morning. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, 
but they had only been baptized in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So, so notice here, what, what do we see in the text? How is the Holy Spirit working in, the, in this passage? Well, he appears to be working, appears to be working in two stages, right? One, when the Samaritans come to faith through Philip's preaching, and another, when Peter and John lay their hands on the Samaritans. So, so the question before us is this. What does Luke really want us to understand we can come here with our theological agendas and some of that actually does come out in here. We have to wrestle with it theologically, but also kind of like what, what's Luke really driving at in this delay? So let's look at these answers. They fall into three categories. The first we'll touch on, we're not going to spend a lot of time with. The first, the first answer that theologians have given to this delay in Samaria is they'd say, you know, the Samaritans, they just weren't really true Christians yet. They, 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 did, they just weren't saved yet. Simply put, they, they, they hadn't come to saving faith in verse 12. Rather, they kind of got carried along by a hurting instinct of, of all this excitement going on. They identified with Christ without ever really coming to true faith in Christ. Yet the problem with this interpretation is, is that Luke does not give us a single indication that the Samaritans have a defective faith. No indication they have a defective faith. No, no indication that Philip is preaching a defective gospel. No. Rather, the people of Samaria are portrayed as true believers, and who is the false believer in this text? Simon the magician. That, that's the contrast. So, so the Samaritans, for everything we see in the text, are, are true believers. Which brings us to the second way that theologians have understood the Spirit's delay. We're going to spend quite a bit of time here because, number one, it helps us understand a difference, but it also helps tie us into where we're going to go. The theologians have understood this delay to conclude, have seen this delay as an indication that these verses point us towards the Bible's example of what normal Christianity should look like. They're saying this, this episode is an example of, of normal Christianity, By this I specifically mean that the Samaritan's experience demonstrates that the normal Christian life entails two distinct stages of the Holy Spirit's work. That would be their answer. And it might surprise you. It really might surprise you that this second position is held, granted in very different ways, by two groups that don't seem very much alike, the Roman Catholic Church and by the Pentecostal and many Charismatics. It's actually held by both, but in very different ways. Yet for the sake of time that we have this morning, I'm going to focus on, on the, uh, the beliefs of our Protestant brethren in the Pentecostal and, and Charismatic movement. And they'd tell us this as they come to this passage. They'd say, the first stage of the Christian life, as we see here in this text, points us to the fact that the Christian life consists of what we typically refer to, number one, first stage is, Conversion. Conversion. And when we're talking about conversion, we're talking about when a person responds to the gospel in repentance and faith. That's what we see on the outside, right? They hear the gospel, we see them respond in repentance and faith. And on these grounds and the witness of the rest of the New Testament, we would conclude that the Holy Spirit has accomplished his work of regeneration and new birth in their life. Stage one for them. 
And the second stage of the Christian life, they would say, though, doesn't incur until the believer is finally baptized with or filled with the Spirit. And this might happen moments, it might happen months, or it might happen decades after their conversion. In fact, let me, let me quote from the foundations of Pentecostal theology so that I'm using their words and not my own. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the new birth. Rather, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience subsequent to, that means later on, following, and distinct from his regenerative work in conversion. That's two stages. In this second work, the third person of the Godhead comes on the believer to anoint and energize them for special service. It goes on to say, a full Christian experience should always contain both. But this distinction between the two must always be made because there are genuinely saved people who have never been filled with the Spirit. So that's, when we're talking about two-stage, that's what we're talking about. Somebody, somebody being saved and being regenerate and, and, and looking towards an eternity with Jesus Christ, yet, yet somehow not being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we might ask, well, how can we know that somebody has experienced that second stage? And the typical answer is, is that it's revealed through a sudden supernatural utterance like speaking in tongues. So, so that's the connection with, with how those pieces are often coming together in their theology. So what I, what I want you to see in this is the, the key distinction in this view is not simply that Pentecostal Christians believe in charismatic gifts. It's that they believe that a person can truly be saved while at the same time being utterly devoid of the Spirit's power to conquer their sin or to minister effectively for Jesus. That, that's, that's the difficulty of the two-stage. That's what ends up coming out. And, and I'm not sure how everybody here grew up. I know, I know a few of you have grown up with a charismatic background. Others of you, and, and especially not a charismatic background, and, and for those of you who didn't, you might be going, you know, this seems like a big jump for me, Pastor. Like one passage to get there. One, one passage. Well, let me actually just step into their shoes just for a minute. The truth of the matter is that this twofold of this view of the Spirit isn't built on just one passage. It's not. It's, it's actually built on a larger pattern of the Spirit's work in the book of Acts. Let me walk through four key events really quick. Bullet point them. You know what the first one is? Pentecost. Right? We're in in the Gospels. It's clear that the disciples have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We we, see that. We'd be like, yep, they're saved. When do they get get the Spirit? They get them at Pentecost. Two years later. We We see it here with the Samaritans. Saved under the ministry of Philip, but not baptized in the Spirit until some days later at the hands of the apostles. We, 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 can, we can see something like this happen in the life of Paul who, who comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ when Jesus stops him on the road, right? There's no question Paul's come to saving faith. But when does he receive the Spirit? Three days later with, at the hands of Ananias. And we even see kind of this, this unique experience when Paul runs into 12 guys in Ephesus who don't quite have the full picture, about what's up with the baptism of John and what Jesus has done and the Holy Spirit. So, so 
we see some, some accounts in Acts that this seem to demonstrate that this could be a pattern. So, so that's, I, want to, I, want, I just want you to see that, that it's more than just this one passage. But the problem with the solution of seeing this as the typical work, a, a two-stage work, is, is that it ends up deviating from the, the normal teaching and practice of the apostles, not only in Acts, but really in the rest of the New Testament. And, and when I say that, please, please hear me, I'm, I'm critiquing their understanding of the Spirit's work. I, I'm not questioning their salvation here. Okay? Difference between that. To begin with, if we look in our text, in verse 16, John Stott points out in his commentary, the word only in verse 16 is really astounding. It jumps out. It implies two things. It implies that the two things, conversion and the filling of the Holy Spirit, were really expected to happen together. The expectation of the apostles is they're, they're supposed to happen together. They're there looking for them, but contrary to this normal expectation, the, Spirit, the, the Samaritan's water baptism was not accompanied by the Spirit's baptism. They received the sign, but without the very thing that it signified, end quote. So, so even in the text, there's this note of like, there's something wrong. Some scholars would even say, Peter and John have been dispatched to Samaria to figure out like, why, why aren't things operating normally? In addition to this, if we turn back to Peter's very first sermon in Acts, Acts chapter 2, what is the promise for everyone who repents and believes and is baptized in Acts chapter 2? The promise is that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe and be baptized, and what? You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. So it's a promise. And if we move forward from Acts into the teaching of the epistles, we see a similar one-stage pattern. We see a one-stage pattern that starts to come through in the epistles. We're not going to go with an exhaustive list. I'm going to grab two passages to highlight this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul clearly agrees with, with Peter's sermon and that he declares in Romans 8, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You don't have the Spirit, you don't belong. There's not a category for a being saved and not having the Spirit. If we turn forward to Peter's own words in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4, we, we, we studied through this book a little while ago. What did Peter tell us? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Peter's making a promise to everyone who's truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, not not to a subgroup of those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. So let me just pause here and make an important qualification. 
I am not trying to say that there are not times in a believer's life where God pours out the Spirit on them in, in specific ways for specific times for specific purposes. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Because we see that happen all over our Bible. We actually see it also happen in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, when the church prays for boldness. In Acts 4.31. This is after Pentecost. They pray for boldness. And what are we told? That they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what do they start to do? They continue to speak the word with all boldness. We see this special filling for a purpose and a time that happens subsequent to their salvation, subsequent to their experience of Pentecost. So we're not saying that there aren't times where the Holy Spirit may come and fall on his people. I believe he does. Which leads us to the question, how? How are we supposed to support and understand and interpret these, these two stage accounts in the book of Acts? Well, I believe the answer is that Luke wants us to see them as redemptive historical milestones. He, he wants us to see them as redemptive historical milestones in the apostles' disciple-making mission from Judea and Samaria, from Judea, pardon me, Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. I think they're supposed to be like highway markers. To put, to put it in, in, in terms of the point, the Samaritans' experience is not an indication that they did not have the Spirit but that they had not received the overtly charismatic manifestations of the Spirit. And, and, and this, this, this proposition, to my knowledge, was first put forward by John Calvin, of all people. John Calvin put this forward. He, 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 he's, 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 he's giving us an important biblical distinction had the Samaritans received both the regenerating and the lifelong indwelling baptism of the Holy Spirit? Calvin is saying yes. And I think that that's what we see in the text. Yes. What's missing? What's missing if we're following the storyline of Acts? What's missing is we haven't seen a manifestation, an external manifestation that it's happened because that's been a pattern in Acts. But if this is the answer, which I believe it is, it, it then presses us to the question, why? Why? Why does it really matter that the Samaritans haven't spoken in tongues or, or manifest any other charismatic gifts if they're truly saved? Because once again, if you haven't grown up with a charismatic background, nobody has been looking at you and expecting you to have charismatic manifestations to demonstrate that you're saved, right? Right? Well, I believe that this delay is helping us see God's ultimate goal in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven? In the book of Acts. You will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice, what's Jesus doing? Well, what's he doing in his very last words to his disciples? He's calling his disciples to follow what we might call a three-step approach to their disciple-making mission. We can, we can say that we can see it expanding out in this ring of three concentric circles. I mean, anybody who's thrown a rock in a pond or a mud puddle knows what that looks like, right? You know what it's like to throw that rock and see just, you see those ripples move out. You, you know what it's like to take a bullseye target that has the X in the middle and move out from there. You, you take that target and you put it down over the ancient world. Jesus begins in Judea and, in Judea and Jerusalem and then out to Samaria, then out to the ends of the earth. Now, now, what's the importance of this movement? It's not merely geographic. It's not simply geographic. No, from Jerusalem to all Judea, who are we focused on? Who are the people? We're focused on Jews. We're focused on the world of Judaism at the time. That, that's, that's, that's where they're at. Sure, they're around everywhere else, but that is the primary world and the spiritual center, certainly, of Judaism. Now we step out one ring to the Samaritans. We found out last week, what is this ring occupied by? Who is in this ring? It's populated by Israel's half-breed cousins, right? They're half-breed cousins who had utterly abandoned the Jewish faith for an apostate religion of their own making. Samaria. We get out to the third ring to the ends of the earth. Where are we going now with the gospel? We are going with the gospel out to the overtly idol-worshiping Gentile world. Those are the three rings. See, Samaria is an important stage, not just geographically, but redemptive historically, in that God is bringing his nation of Israel back together into one. You want to take some time, read Ezekiel 36 and 37. So now let's align. Let's align this overtly charismatic manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts that we see here and that we've just highlighted with this three-step disciple-making mission. Let's look at it through that lens. Number one, when the Holy Spirit falls in the most obvious way on Jesus' Jewish disciples on the day of Pentecost... What's he doing? We, we, we saw this. He's revealing to, to devout Jews in Jerusalem. Remember, it specifically says in the text, devout Jews are all gathered in for the feast. So to, to a group of devout Jews in Jerusalem that the promised restoration to God and outpouring of the Holy Spirit has finally come. God's new covenant blessings and his promises are being fulfilled and they're here and they're now. The end times have arrived. Jerusalem, manifestation of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, now we're just gonna we're just gonna hop over Samaria for the moment. We're gonna we're jump past them. Let's go, let's go forward to Peter's interaction with Cornelius that will be seen in a number of weeks. Well, what happens when Peter shows up at Cornelius's house through this crazy interaction of dreams between Cornelius and and Peter? 
And he shows and he starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instantly, this, this group of Gentiles break out in tongues. External evidence that something has happened. And when Peter returns to Jerusalem, what does he report? Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Here's an important phrase. Just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice, Peter's making it clear that these Gentiles have experienced the very same things that the apostles did on the day of Pentecost. And given that they've experienced the very same thing, what does this mean for Peter? Well, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I mean, I mean, he's on the stand right now for baptizing a bunch of Gentiles into the church. And he's like, this is why. Same thing. What am I supposed to do? Now, how does everybody else respond? The other apostles, 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's, that's how they respond. Bring them in. They see this as a direct endorsement. They, they see this as a direct endorsement of the Gentiles' faith and undeniable evidence that they should be welcomed into the church as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's how he interprets it. And that interpretation is really important. Finally, if we apply this response to the curious delay of the spirit in Samaria. So moving back inside one ring. And we've got to be honest. In this account of Samaria, it doesn't record that they broke out in tongues or charismatic outbursts of any sort. But there seems to be something clearly evident in Simon's response that he sees that there's, there's something evident going on. It's just not recorded. So when we go to the delay of the spirit in Samaria, what do we see? I think when we understand it in light of what's gone on with Cornelius, we see that the God-ordained delay in the Spirit in Samaria. It's so that John and Peter can witness God's stamp of approval. His stamp of approval on a half-breed apostate people. Publicly verifying that they had been born again and were full-fledged members of the one family of God. One family of God. One church. God's stamp of approval saying, mine, they belong to me. Just like the Gentiles. And I think that we see that even more clearly because what happens in verse 25 when the apostles leave. They go preaching throughout the regions of Samaria on their way back to Jerusalem. In fact, we can even point out the fact that the spirit's of delay in Paul's conversion is similar. Yet with Paul, Paul's a Jew. The problem is, is Paul is a persecutor and a hater of Christians. 
And what does the delay end up doing? It ends up showing God's stamp of approval on a formal, former persecutor to the hands of a well-known Christian Ananias. I mean, we even get the record like when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, everybody's running for cover after he comes to faith. Like, wait a minute, is this the guy that's persecuting the church? But through this delay, what's, what are we seeing? Once again, just like the others, stamp of approval. He belongs to me. No, notice the critical factor in each of these cases is not, is, is, is not whether there was a delay or not. Because we don't see a delay when it comes to Cornelius and the Gentiles. No, no, the, the, the critical factor is that there was some overwhelming evident self-disclosure through which God said, these are my people through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing that binds them together. These are my people. These people belong to the church. See, the lesson here is, 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 is as the church moved outward in obedience to Jesus Christ. And, and actually, we could, I, mean, I should say, initially, not even just in obedience to Christ, they're running for their lives, right? That's where chapter 8 begins. It's persecution that has driven them there. By God's providence, Philip is in Samaria. But as they move outward, what, what ends up going on is that the Jewish church did not follow the pattern of its former Judaism. In Judaism, you had multiple classes, right? You had people that had converted to Judaism, but they were always on the outside looking in. We had the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as you can get. You can't get into the real worship. We got the court of the women. You can't get into the real place where everybody else worships. Just the men. There's no distinction. There's no differentiation when it comes to the church. Now, what do we see here? Jesus is breaking down the barriers that used to divide the Jews from every other people around them, whether that be Gentiles or that be the Samaritans. And he does it through the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, what do we see as we read through the New Testament? We see one people of God. We see one body of Christ. We see one community of the Holy Spirit, which was the fruit of one indescribable act of self-sacrifice by our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what did that result in? The one gospel through which all men and women of any ethnicity, any background, any, any former lifestyle are saved. That's what it results in. And in this, what do we see? There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There's no unwanted stepchildren in the family of God. No matter who you are, no matter what your background there's no lines to be drawn, though often we excel at drawing lines that should never exist. So let's move to some application. How can we apply this truth to our everyday lives? 
We, we live in a completely different day and age. On the one hand, I thought about it. We could talk about the inclusion of outsiders and, and minority groups and others that we might look down on. And, and there's, there's, there's always, always a place for the church to talk about that. But as, as I was in my office this week and Ryan and I talked some, I, I don't think it's the most poignant application for this church on this Sunday or at this stage of where we're at. I don't think it's the most important. And and I get there because I was also turning to Ephesians. I had Ryan, Ryan led us together in Ephesians chapter two talking about what does God do in the gospel? He removes all barriers, all people, making them into one new man in Jesus Christ. That's that's Ephesians two. But you wanna know where Paul goes for application? How does Paul apply that very point in Ephesians chapter four? He doesn't go to then apply it to ethnic distinctions, which is why I'm not going to go there today. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, church, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling which you've received, with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So now you might ask the question, why? For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What, what, where does this call emanate from? To walk worthy of your calling in Jesus Christ. The fact that we've been made one. That's where he goes. So, so let's just take a minute to look at this imperative. Walk in a manner or, or live in a way. Live in a way that is worthy of your calling. Now, we can think of worthy in a couple different ways. So let's, let's clarify what we mean and don't mean. When Paul call, commands us to walk in a manner that worthy of our calling, he is not saying that we should be trying to earn or deserve our place in God's favor. He's not saying you got saved, now constantly live your life like trying to earn and deserve that favor. No, no, he's telling us to recognize how much our place in God's favor and our union with Christ actually deserves from us. Like, like, like what does it matter that you got saved? What does it matter that Christ has done this in your life? It calls for a response. That's what he's saying. And the focus, so it's, the focus isn't our worth or our worthiness, but it's the, it's the worth of our calling. But what does this, this worthy Christian lifestyle look like? Is it spiritual, private, and personal? I don't think so. I mean, it's personal in a way, but it's not just this, this private thing that we do in our little closet or in our house or in our prayer life. It's not something that we just do as individuals. No, it's explicitly relational. 
in that, in that it's carried out within our everyday relationships in the local church. Living a life worthy of your, worthy of your calling happens expressly in the context of the local church and your interactions with fellow Christians. And there's two key pursuits. Two key pursuits. Number one, bearing with one another in love. Now when I think of bearing with one another in love, let me highlight here, who's, who, who's carrying the weight in this verse? Who, who's carrying the weight? Each and every one of us are carrying the weight. We are bearing one another. We're bearing with one another. But what's, what's, what's fueling this forbearance? That's important. What, what's fueling it? What's driving it? What, is it? what is it manifest by? Love. It's love. But the moment we get to that word love, we get in a predicament because we live in a day and age that, that the word love has been perverted to mean any number of things, Right? So let's keep love in the context of what, what Paul is trying to tell us. The, the kind of love that he's talking about is not the sentimental, fleshly love that looks for the, the loveliness or the worth of the person that is to be loved. That's not biblical love. That is certainly not the love with which Christ loved us. We were undeserving in every way possible. We were fully deserving his just and righteous wrath. We, we need to keep love in the proper biblical perspective. And when we start to have and grasp the kind of love that it's talking about, and, and it's like our love is never to the same degree that God's is for us, but it is, it is a a a reflection, often a, a, a dirty and warped reflection, but it's a reflection of what his love is. That's what we're called to reflect, is his love. To our brothers and sisters, not looking for something in them that I need to respond to to actually show love first. And what does it look like? What does forbearing love look like? The text tells us. It looks like an underlying heart disposition that is marked by the Spirit's fruit. What he highlights here, this is, this is spirit work. This is not human work. This is not flesh work. My flesh does not compel me to be humble. Does yours? And when we think of humility, I'm thinking of Philippians 2 here. Placing others' needs and desires above your own. Humility. How about gentleness? Do you just want to get things done, however it is, your way, run over everybody else in the way? Don't, don't even worry about the body count. No, being gentle is not being abrasive, not being bullish. Not steamrolling anybody that's in your way for whatever you want to accomplish. It's also marked by patiently forbearing with the annoying idiosyncrasies of our fellow Christians. Patience. Patience. I mean, let's be honest. I didn't change overnight when I became a Christian. 
I've had any number of struggles and character faults and quirks. I'm still working on. Yet, yet we look at our fellow Christians and often expect them to change overnight. Patiently forbearing. So it's the second pursuit. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I find it kind of interesting here that the kind of unity that Paul's talking about here, it's, it is not forced conformity. It's not the kind of unity that we have to get black and white dividers and make sure everybody's standing in the white and not touching the black. That's not the kind of unity he's talking about. Nor, nor is it the kind of unity that places relational unity over biblical faithfulness. That's also not what he's talking about. It's a kind of unity and peace that flows once again from an underlying heart disposition. And what's the disposition here? There's an eagerness. Highlight that, circle it, underline it in your Bible, eager to maintain peace in the body of Christ. Not eager to get your own way, eager to tear others down, eager to blow up, eager to maintain unity. It's a disposition. What does it look like? I just got three little bullet points. We could add a whole list. It's a dis- disposition that is not constantly attributing sinful motive to the actions of others. That's often what we get in the most trouble for is we attribute motive to action. It's a dis- disposition that's always ready to believe the best and not always think the worst. It's a disposition that refuses to live by the three strikes and you're out relationship. They had their chance. I gave it to them. It's over. Yeah, they're at church, but they may as well be dead because I don't even acknowledge them anymore. No, it's a kind of... It's a kind of eagerness that embraces the true cost and difficulty of cultivating long-term relationships through the ups and downs of life. So, so where does love and unity in my local church begin with? Where does it begin? It begins with me. It begins with you. Unity always begins with me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out in his little book, Life Together. He makes this wonderful insight. He said, if the sins of my brothers and sisters in Christ are more glaring and detestable than my own, I'm not really recognizing my sinfulness for what it really is. Is that some honesty? I mean, if if they're so bad and so awful and so detestable, like, who do I think I really am? He goes on to say, if I don't see my sin for what it truly is, how will I ever be able to bear with my brothers and sisters in unfeigned humility and love if I honestly believe their sinfulness is worse than my own? Let's be honest, it's it's not going to happen, is it? But it presses us to the question as we close, how is this even possible? 
Well, as we transition to the Lord's table this morning, I think it points us towards the path. And it's the path where the Christian life begins. It's the path on which the Christian life is lived until the very day that we stop living or Christ returns, and that's the gospel. Just think about what do we commemorate each and every month as we celebrate the Lord's table? We gather together, celebrate the Lord's table. We commemorate our desperate need and Christ's ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. We're commemorating that. What did I bring to Christ for my salvation? Nothing but my sin. That's what I brought. We, we commemorate our glorious new identity in Christ, the work that he's done, really done in our life. We, we commemorate our unity as a church. That's why we celebrate communion together. Where we're bound together by the Holy Spirit into one body. We commemorate that around the Lord's table. And we commemorate God's promise as we look to the future and the past of forgiveness and restoration and eternal joy through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we commemorate. 1 John 4, 9-10. In this is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And here's the key, verse 10. This is love. Not that we had loved God, no, no, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. And just in case you, you kind of stumble over that $10 word, it means wrath-bearing payment. Emphasizing once again that his love was manifest when we were at our worst and had no ability to straighten anything out. And that should have a drastic impact on how we live life together as the body of Christ. So let's pray. We'll transition to communion.